your shoes are to your body, much what a foundation is to a home. A foundation determines the shape of a building and it determines the weight that uh, can be built, uh, the superstructure that can be built on it. Your shoes are much the same way. Your shoes will define your ability. For example, you're, you're not going to run a sprint in high heels unless a three-year-old has your wig or the remote control. Other than that, you're not going to do it. The, the same is true. You're probably not going to go to a wedding in tennis shoes. Most likely, you're not going to do that unless you plan on running before I do happens, okay? So your, your shoes end up shaping so much of what you can do uh, with um, yourself and, and the movements that you can make, even the weight that you can place on something. So when you hike, you've got to have the right kind of shoes. When you run, you've got to have the right kind of shoes. If you're in military combat, you've got to have the right kind of shoes. And the Roman soldier knew precisely what he needed. In fact, the Roman soldier wore military-grade sandals that would help him in conflict and battle. They oftentimes had studs in the bottom to give them secure footing, much like cleats, but a little longer. And then the Roman soldier um, would uh, have soles that were very thick. And he needed these soles to be especially thick because enemies oftentimes would plant sharp sticks or sharp objects in the field of battle in order to penetrate his feet. And if he wasn't properly equipped, he could um, be penetrated with these sticks in his feet and ruin his ability to fight and engage in battle. Paul picks up on that image in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number Verse number 15. Now, what he says here is, is that you can win and have victory in spiritual warfare if you will make the gospel your foundation or your footing. And just to review real quickly, this is a real battle. The battle with demons and the devil is real. Now, it's enough for me that Jesus talked about it and engaged in it because I don't think I know more about these things than Jesus does. There are some that want to doubt those. Now, I will say also to you, if that's not enough, and I think it should be, but in case it's not, uh, back in the early 70s, University of California at Berkeley began to offer a degree in parapsychology to research and study these issues. So there's a whole science uh, behind that. I'm not saying they necessarily adopt the Christian perspective on this, but Jesus did, and frankly, that's enough for me. I don't think I know more about these things than Jesus did, and the Bible is an um, inerrant witness to what Jesus happened to say and an inerrant record. But uh, having said that, the battle is real, and so Paul says, beginning in verse number 10 of Ephesians 6, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the schemes or methods of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. And there are ranks and organization of demons that are there. It doesn't go beyond that, but uh, there apparently is a rank and hierarchy amongst them. And so... Uh, because of that, because the battle is real, and they're ranked and they're organized and have been very, very effective uh, for uh, thousands of years, it says in verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, not piecemeal, not what necessarily pleases you, but the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand uh, in the evil day and having to done all to stand. So there's hope. And there's possibility here. You can win in spiritual warfare, and you don't have to constantly be defeated. Well, what are the specific elements of the armor? Verse number 14. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, uh, integrity, and honesty, 
uh, entire transparency before God and where appropriate with others. And then having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Our culture frowns on righteousness, but God delights in it. And so you've got to make a choice. Am I going to embrace God's standards and walk in them in the power of the Holy Spirit? And, and then our text today, verse 15. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You have a very heavy load to carry. The load of victory and making a difference in this world for Jesus Christ, beginning with yourself and your family, your neighbors, and then your world, is a very heavy load to carry. And you've got to have footing or foundation enough to stand upon it. Now your translation may read, having um, put on the preparation of the gospel of peace, or the readiness of the gospel of peace. Uh, the, the Greek word behind that can be translated preparation, or readiness, or foundation. Uh, base or footing. Uh, it's, it's all really pretty much the same idea. You're not ready to build a home. You're not prepared to build a home until you have a foundation. You're not ready to engage in battle until you are prepared and ready with footing. And, and so the basic root idea is the same. I think the best translation in verse 15 is to read it this way in verse 15. And having shod your feet with the foundation or the footing of the gospel of peace. Having shod your feet with the footing of the gospel of of peace. And so we can have victory in spiritual warfare when we make the gospel our foundation in footing. And so there are a number of implications that flow out of this, especially how Paul uses the word gospel and peace in the book of Ephesians. So in spiritual warfare, make Christ's gospel the foundation and footing of several things. And the first is God. Your view and your understanding of God have got to be shaped and framed by the gospel of Christ. Now what demons would love to do is that they would like to plant the sharp sticks of theological error, and they have, frankly, all over the world, but they want this to be in your heart and in your mind as well. They want you to define God apart from the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And world religions do this. Please don't say something silly like all religions teach the same thing. There may be some similar morality. Oh, but my soul, a Buddhist would never agree with that notion. Buddhists would never agree that we all teach the same thing. Hindus would never agree that we teach the same thing. Muslims would never agree that we teach the same thing. Atheists would not agree that we teach the same thing. I mean, Baptists and Methodists don't say even something like that. We've got a few differences uh, amongst them, although they are within the Christian fold, uh, obviously. But, uh, so don't say something silly like that because it's simply not true. The, the Christian faith teaches that we have fallen into sin, and because God is a king and a judge with the court system and laws and sentences, He has sentenced all sinners to death. The wages of sin is death. And so we've been sentenced to capital punishment. But God is also a God of love, and He was not satisfied with that. And so He put together a plan where someone would pay our penalty. In His court system, He allows substitutions. So when Jesus Christ came, He was our substitute at the cross, and God was well pleased with Him because He raised Him from the dead. By the resurrection of the dead, He announced to the world that He is satisfied with the cross of Christ, and that the cross satisfied His justice, satisfied the 
the, um, the fee, the payment, the uh, demand of the court and the law of God. And he signified that by raising Jesus from the dead. And so he planted embassies around the world called churches and staffed them with diplomats called Christians, and we communicate this to the world. One day he's going to evacuate these embassies and implement the wrath and the fury that we find in the book of Revelation in order to cleanse the earth and make it ready for Jesus to return and to come back. Uh, when he evacuates these embassies, that's the resurrection of the rapture, and he will raise us from the dead. And so that's what uh, you have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God defines himself that way. So please don't say something silly like Muslims teach that. They're opposed to that. They don't believe Jesus died on the cross. They, they, they don't believe that he was God in human flesh. Buddhists and Hindus don't believe that. Uh, in some forms of Buddhism, in fact, in fact, the original form, it's basically atheistic. And so the, the, the silly notion that we all teach the same thing is, is indeed that. It, it's not. We need to take those folks seriously on the basis of what they themselves teach, not what we wish that we, uh, what we wish that they taught. And the, the, the point is this. Nothing outside the Christian faith, biblically defined, shapes God according to the gospel, and God has revealed himself in the gospel. When you look at the gospel, what you have is that you have God's priorities, God's intention, his plan, his purpose, his heart, and his very soul on display in the gospel. Now, the text I want you to look at is Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 2 in chapter 6, verse 23. These form bookends for the book of Ephesians and define God. It says in verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So God is the source of grace and peace, and these things define God, and God defines these things. In verse 23 as well, Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God defines himself with the gospel. His soul and priorities are on display with the gospel. He, and that essentially is, he exalts Jesus Christ in the salvation of sinners. Now, I complained earlier about world religions and how they define God, or whatever they conceive of as God, apart from the gospel. But friends, I've got to tell you, it's not just the world religions that do that and that makes them inadequate. There are portions of the so-called Christian church that do that as well. 2 Thessalonians 2 and 1 Timothy chapter 4 and 2 Timothy chapter 3 teach that in the last days, churches are going to apostatize and abandon the faith. Listen, the devil doesn't oppose all churches. He's joining some of them. And demons are too. Not everything that goes under the guise of Christian is necessarily Christian. In fact, in our day, to use the word Christian to define who you are can be a negative thing. Because all the foolishness and silliness that has happened in personal lives under that guise. So you need to understand, demons want you to define God apart from the gospel. Let me say this, demons will be very happy and the devil would be very, very happy for you to define God as someone who wants you to merely engage in right behavior and to do right. Although they'll be fine with that. And, and that you would join a church and engage in baptism in the Lord's Supper. And that you would give. Demons are all in favor of that. As long as you do it without the gospel. You see, what that tends to do, it tends to make us self-righteous. 
And we don't come before God humbly as broken sinners. And we turn to the world with self-righteousness and we begin to evaluate ourselves in terms of self-righteousness. Let me say, make it very, very clear to you. Any form of righteousness or Christian service apart from the gospel doesn't originate in heaven. Everything must be defined how God defines himself and that happens to be with the shed blood of Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and that Jesus is the center and circumference of everything that God is about. You know what? Frankly, there are some people in churches that could quit coming to church and stop reading their Bibles and stop praying and stop giving and nothing in their life would change otherwise. Because they've never come to Christ for a true conversion. And, and so often in our culture, when we talk about conversion, we talk about what we have done. Well, he converted to the Christian faith. Listen, if you converted to the Christian faith, you got big problems. You don't convert yourself. God converts you. The experience of God's grace and coming to Christ in the Christian faith is an act of God where he changes you. You see... We're, we're, we're not on the business. Listen, we're not on the business of making bad people good. We're in the business of making dead people live. That's the whole point. And, and outside of Jesus Christ, we are dead in trespasses and sins, and there's no hope at all of meeting God until we repent and place faith in Christ. And then the righteousness becomes a humble act of gratitude and love to God. Then the giving becomes a way to propel the gospel around the world. And then our motives are entirely correct. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not against doing right and, and, and against giving and joining churches, baptism, the Lord's Supper. No, no. What we're against, though, is defining these things apart from the gospel of Christ and defining God in some other way besides the gospel of Christ. Listen, the Muslims and the Buddhists and the Hindus are doing that. We define God in terms of Jesus Christ. So we can meet God on good terms only when we embrace Jesus on gospel terms. And there's no other hope. We've got to come humbly before God with the gospel. And so that's why every Sunday, like we will do today, at the end of this message We'll sing a song and we'll give you the opportunity to turn to Christ because there's nothing more important. We'll invite you to humble yourself before Him and admit, I've got a need for Him. I cannot make myself right with God no matter how much I do. My righteousness is as filthy rags. I agree with the prophet Isaiah. And we'll give you the opportunity to renounce a life and all that arrogance that goes with believing you're good enough to reject that and come as a broken, humble uh, lawbreaker before God and plead with the King to forgive you because you trust that Jesus purchased that at the cross and certified it in the resurrection. You'll have that opportunity at the end of this message, and we would encourage you to come. So, in spiritual warfare, make Christ's gospel the foundation and footing of God, of what you understand about God. But second, not only God, but security. Take a look at chapter 1, verse 13, and Paul talks about having the assurance and security that you know Christ. Speaking of Jesus, he says, In Him... You also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. A seal is oftentimes what a king would place on a letter or a tomb 
or a doorway or some kind of locker in the ancient world, and he would seal it with the seal, and you couldn't break it except on penalty of death. Only the king had the ability to do that in the authority and the right. And the Bible is saying that you have, if you've come to Christ, you have been actually placed and immersed into Jesus Christ. Now you reflect on that a while, and it's going to be a very exciting discovery that you're going to make. All that you are has been hidden in Jesus Christ. Your life is hid with Christ in God. And the Holy Spirit is the seal God has placed over you. And no power on heaven or on earth will break that. No power in hell, no power on earth will, and no power in heaven will at all. You've been sealed. You have your security in Jesus Christ. It reminds me, the last church where I served as a youth minister, we had a dear woman that um, uh, really believed that she had the talent to sing. And somehow she would badger our minister of music to stand up and sing. It's the most painful thing I've ever seen in my life. Really was. She, she could have been a really good greeter, but the pro, in addition to that, she thought she was Sandy Patty. And I don't know why Jerry let her sing as much as he did, but on the other hand, we had a lady in our church who could sing the stars down. She was tremendous. And, um, but she, she wasn't very confident. She would sing about once a year. She would sing Oh Holy Night during our Christmas program. And she would sing down the stars. So what you have here is a situation where one lady, one person, um, thought she had talent but didn't, and the other one thought she didn't have talent and did. You know, a lot of people are that way with uh, salvation. What demons want to do is that if you're outside of Christ and you don't know Jesus, they, they want you to think that you do. In other words, they want you to have a false sense of security. And what you'll do is that if you ever contemplate why you should have assurance of salvation, that you'll go to heaven when you die, you'll start pointing to your works and all the good deeds you've done. So they want lost people to have a false sense of security. They want Christian people to have a false sense of doubt. And quite frankly, very, very effective in doing so. The text teaches that instead, we are to place our faith entirely in Jesus Christ. We've heard the gospel, we've trusted, and then we've been sealed. And that's what it takes to be saved. And in that is our hope. Now, if you look at chapter 4, verse 24, you'll find some real practical counsel here on how you can know that you know that you have actually come to Christ. Verse 24, and that you put on the new man which is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. If you've come to Christ, then what you need to know is that God has begun a good work in you and He is recreating who you are. He's making you new and different. And so Genesis 1 and 2 is your story, personally. And that wasn't just true for the heavens and the earth. You know, the earth was formless and void in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. And then the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the earth. And then God said, let there be light. And then God began to redecorate the earth that was formless and void. And it took on beauty. It took on life. And that's what happens when we come to Jesus Christ. When we first come to Christ, we're formless and void. And immediately God begins to redecorate our life. And we are, He recreates us into the image of Jesus Christ. So from the point that you came to Jesus Christ until today, God has been recreating you and making you new if you really know the Lord. In other words, there are things in your life that cannot be explained by good raising, a good home life, good parents. 
There are things in your life that you can't explain by a good education or self-discipline or personal character. These are things that you would have even if you were an atheist, a Buddhist, a Hindu, a monk. Um, These are things that you would have no matter what. These are things that Jesus Christ himself has done. So if you doubt and you're not certain that you know Christ is Lord and Savior, what you need to do is, my counsel is, to immerse yourself for a week in the book of 1 John and read it through every day for seven days. And what you'll find is that you'll find some of these markers, some of these things that God does that He begins to grow us and develop us whenever we come to Jesus Christ. And there are about 17 of them. And what you need to do is ask ask yourself two questions. Number one, has this ever started in my life? Is God developing these things in me? I'm not perfect. He doesn't expect that. In fact, humility with our own sin is one of those markers. We get very intensely humble about our failures, and we take them to God. Uh, There are a variety of other things like love and a growing knowledge of the Word and um, a a growing fellowship with the Holy Spirit, victory over the world, and a variety of other things. But take a look at that book, 1 John. Read it through every day for seven days and ask first, has this ever commenced in me? Has this ever started in me? And number two, when? When? If I'm really born again, if I really know Christ, there was a point in time where my life began to change and I began to grow and look more and more like Jesus. I'm not perfect, not saying that, but there are some serious markers in my life where I am a different person. Now, why is it then that someone who is really trust Christ, why is it that this person would doubt his or her salvation? Well, one, some lack knowledge. They just don't know that they can know. They hope so, but they've never been taught from the Scripture that you can know. John says in 1 John 5, 13, These things I write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know. Listen, every person that claims to know Christ that is a Christian should know that he or she certainly is saved and will meet God in favor and not judgment when they die. We should know. Some have that lack of knowledge. The second thing is that some have some unconfessed sin. And what happens is that God begins to chastise us and discipline us in our soul and our spirit. And we get a bit insecure with God because we haven't confessed our sin and gotten right with Him. And when you pile one on top of the other and you're living in rebellion, doing things you ought not do, you're going to have that insecurity. And it may be that you've just not confessed sin. A, A third reason is constant repeated failure. Constant, I mean, there's just something you can't get past and you think, there's no way I could be saved. Well, yeah, there is. Uh, In fact, our text tells us why. Demons may have a stronghold in your life that you need to give over to God, and we may need to talk about that. And then finally, the reason some people doubt is that they've never really been saved. They've never really been born again, and so messages like this concern them. I'll tell you, through the years, my crowd, the evangelist and the evangelistic pastors who preach messages like this and frequently refer to it about once a month, I guess, Uh, Billy Graham said uh, that there are three mission fields in the world, and uh, the largest happens to be the third. There's the foreign mission field, the home mission field, and the church mission field. Well, every time I hear a message like this, you know what I do? I go back and I examine myself just to make sure I really know Christ. I've got 17 years of theological education. I've been a pastor. I have uh, been a seminary professor. But that is not what assures me that I know Christ. 
It's only that there was a point in time where I repented and gave my heart and life to Jesus and God gave me grace. That's my only hope. That is my only hope. Religious practice is not my hope. Christ and Christ alone is. And so we allow this gospel then to shape our security, uh, our view of God. And then third, our unity. Demons want to plant the sharp sticks uh, to puncture our progress by dividing us. This happens in marriages. This happens in families. It happens in nations. And, of course, that's what you do in military conflict. In the theater of battle, uh, every uh, opposing uh, commander of an army wants to divide forces. It weakens them. That, that's true in marriages. That's true in families. That's true in nations, even churches. Well, God has a different vision in view in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Look there with me. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Speaking of Christ, it says, For He Himself is our peace, who made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, that is, the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in Himself one new man from two, thus making peace. There is absolutely no good excuse for there to be division in the world except over the issues found in Scripture. There's no excuse for it. Because Jesus Christ died at the cross and He purchased peace and unity for the world. There should not be division between Arab and Jew or Persian and Jew. There shouldn't be division in homes. There shouldn't be division anywhere because Jesus Christ has purchased peace, our peace with one another, our unity with one another when He died upon the cross. And that's what He did. That's the price He paid in His flesh. Now it goes on in chapter 3 verse 6. Because of this gospel, the Gentiles should be fellow heirs with the Jews of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel. And so when we're saved, we're unified into the same body of Christ. You know, when we come to Christ, we're placed in Jesus. We are hidden in Him. And that's everyone, Jew and Gentile. That, that's true for all the races and the language and the ethnicities. We are part of the same body. And then... In chapter 4, verse 3, the consequence of this is endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we have a responsibility to guard peace. So gospel-shaped unity is our intention. And that means this, I intentionally stretch my relationships as far as God. God becomes the model of my relationships. And who does God want to be one with? Everyone that comes to Jesus Christ. Really, He wants to be one with everyone, but the terms are come to Christ. So in, in my relationships, if I've got gospel-shaped unity, what I want is I want to stretch my relationships as far as God stretches His. And I do so intentionally. I don't wait for someone else to take the first step. I do so deliberately, purposefully, and intentionally. Then I initiate relationships like God does. I don't wait. I'm not too tore up and worried about whether people like me or not. I mean, I've just kind of concluded, you know, some are, some are not. I'm just going to love them anyway. So I initiate relationships like God does, and then I'm only satisfied when I'm walking in fellowship and unity with others. And so I don't avoid tough and difficult situations. I, I pursue them, and as far as it depends on me, I make peace with all, as Paul said in Romans chapter 12. So when I shape my relationships to resemble God's relationships, I put to flight demons and their divisive schemes.
And so the gospel shapes our unity. But there's a fourth thing. And that is, the gospel is to shape our speech. It reminds me of a fellow who called into his boss one day. His boss's name was Howard. And he said, Howard, my wife wants me to clean up the attic and the yard. She wants me to haul and to move stuff. And Howard responded, well, look, we're shorthanded today, and I, I can't give you time off. He said, thank you. I knew I could count on you. <laughs> God is not Howard. When it comes to getting the gospel to the world, your family, friends, neighbors, and world, God isn't going to say, I can't give you time off to do something else. God isn't Howard. God still places upon us the responsibility of getting the gospel of Christ to the world. And what demons want to do is they want to plant sharp sticks in your life to puncture the feet of your sense of responsibility, of your concern, of your heart given to other people that you might bring them the good news of Jesus Christ. Everyone who knows Jesus should be so thrilled and so in love with Him, so amazed by Him, they can't help to share the good news. And in those times when we're, our spiritual fires are burning low, that sense of responsibility should propel us to return to that and get the good news of Christ out into the world. Well, that's what Paul talks about when he talks about Jesus in chapter 2, verse 17. Look there with me. Speaking of Jesus again, and he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. He's talking about Jesus here. It is Christ-like to share the good news with other people, and it's unchrist-like to withhold it. And then look what the aged apostle says himself in chapter 6, verse 19. He says in verse 18 to pray, and then verse 19 he says, and pray for me that utterance may be given to me and that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. So he's saying, I need you all to pray for me that I'll be evangelistically faithful. Now, does that surprise you that the, Paul, the Apostle Paul would ask for prayer like that? I mean, here he has established the first church on European soil. He's been wildly effective. He won't give up. You, you can't shut him up unless you kill him. I mean, he just communicates the gospel all the time everywhere. And even at this late date in his life, he is still saying, I need you to pray for me because sometimes I'm weak in evangelism. I, I, I need clarity. I need utterance. I need you to pray for me that I can make it known as I ought to know. Yet, Paul didn't give up because he struggled. He persevered. He was Christ-like in doing so. So the gospel is to shape my speech to the world. And that's one reason we've got to be very, very careful with everything from our words and conversations to social media. If we have anyone outside the Christian faith that hears us or reads our social media post, you've got to understand, if you're not careful, I know you don't mean to, but you can mislead them into thinking they get right with God by embracing righteousness, the practice of righteousness. We've got to be very, very careful. The non-Christian world is in the flesh, and what the flesh will always do is that the flesh will always place confidence in, and, and exaggerate personal virtue and personal, personal righteousness. And so if you're always hammering publicly on doing right and being right and getting right, outside the gospel of Christ, the world will think that the way you get right with God is to be right and do right and have virtue. Folks, that's the problem with the vast majority of the world. 
So we've got to be careful when we communicate with the world that the first message, the dominant message that we communicate is the message of the grace of God purchased by the blood and death of Christ and His resurrection. And that's what Paul is doing here in the book of Ephesians. So the gospel has got to shape our speech to the world. And when I share the gospel... I battle demons. When I withhold the gospel, I energize them. Sharing the gospel hurts demons. Silence helps them. Charles Spurgeon said this, The preaching of Christ is the whip that flogs the devil. The preaching of Christ is the thunderbolt, the sound of which makes all of hell shake. There is defeat and downgrade For the demonic kingdom in the gospel of Christ. Luke chapter 10 verse 18, Jesus said, After the disciples preached the gospel, I saw Satan falling like lightning. If you want a demonic, devilish downfall in the world, get busy sharing the gospel. But if you want more of the foolishness we've had in our nation, our community, and world, just be silent. In fact, the foolishness we're dealing with today are the church's unpaid bills for decades of silence about the gospel of Christ. It's come home to us. We've been so nervous and scared and so tore up over approaching the world, and the devil's had his way. And everything that once was nailed down has come loose. There's no power for righteousness. And these are the church's unpaid bills for being silent about Christ. It reminds me of what C.S. Lewis said one time. He said, this world is enemy-occupied territory. And I don't have time to unpack that right now. One day Jesus is coming to take it back. But this world is enemy-occupied territory. And the gospel message is that the rightful king has landed, and he has called us to participate with him in his great campaign of sabotage. Whenever we preach the gospel of Christ and share it, when we embrace the gospel of Christ, when the gospel of Christ shapes our security and our unity, when it shapes our speech, we sabotage the kingdom of darkness. And that's what we do. And we do it with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we watch the enemy fall. Today, God is calling you to participate in this great campaign of sabotage against demonic forces, to take the grace and love of God and receive it first for yourself, to make sure that you know, that you know, that you know, that you know Christ, and not to wait or delay any longer. And then he wants to take the gospel and shape your security, your unity, and your speech. And let me ask you, do you want to be part of this great campaign of sabotage of the dark kingdom? Is that what you want? You can have it today if you do something simple. Need to put yourself on an ark. A is that you need to admit, I've got a need. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And then renounce anything in your life that keeps you from embracing Jesus Christ and His cross and resurrection. Just reject. If it's pride, if it's fear, if it's um, sin, if it's idolatry, whatever it may be, reject it. There is nothing more important than giving your heart and life to Christ. And I want to say, I've known Him more than 30 years, and there is nothing more precious and satisfying. Nothing's worth staying away from Jesus. And then, um, you, um, you trust Him. You turn yourself over to Jesus Christ, and you trust Him enough to go before Him and to ask Him for grace 
to come into your life, take control, and cleanse you. And you really do trust that. And I've got to ask, who can't trust the God who slaughters his son on the cross and raises him from the dead? I mean, to me, it makes the greatest sense in the world. You trust him. And then you call upon him. Acts 2.22 says, Peter said in the first Christian sermon, uh, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know the frustrating thing about cell phones? Anytime I call somebody on the cell phone, I almost never get anyone to pick up. Do you have that experience? I mean, there are more phones and less answers today than ever. You can't do that with God. When you call on Him, He'll come through and He'll answer every time. And He'd love to answer you today. Would you quickly stand with me, please? And I want to pray for you. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for the good news of Jesus. And I thank you that we can be shaped by the gospel. And I want to pray that our view of you and security and unity in our speech would be shaped by your gospel and give us victory therein. And I pray that the kingdom of darkness would fall. I pray that we'll see demons and devil alike fall like lightning. Thank you for the gift of the gospel. And I pray that friends today would be humble before you, that they would admit their need. I pray they would renounce anything that keeps them from Jesus. I pray they'd turn to you and call upon you. Would you please help them by your Holy Spirit to do that very thing? Oh God, please let them get free and liberated like they've never been free and liberated before. Now, as you keep talking to God, concentrate real intently on Him. Why don't you decide now that you're going to turn to Jesus Christ in your need and trust Him? We want to help you with that. We're going to sing a song, and we're going to ask you to come. And we've got staff here in the front who will be glad to receive you and help you. Would you step out from where you are? Everyone Jesus called, he called publicly. He never allowed for secret disciples or secret decisions. Would you come? Talk to Tommy, talk to John. I'll be glad to talk with you and say I'm ready to follow Jesus and give my life to him. Would you come? Others of you need to follow him in baptism, some in church membership. Would you come? Others of you, God may be doing something else in your life. Would you come as well? I'm going to finish my prayer. We're going to begin to sing. We're going to ask you to come. Holy God, would you do a neat work in lives today and magnify Jesus in your great gospel. We thank you that you're a gospel-loving God. And would you please give all the energy and all the power necessary to change hearts and lives today. We believe you can do it. You've done it so often before. And you've promised. And you're faithful. Great is your faithfulness.